We left off uh, a while back in our series on the Gospel of John at the end of chapter 18. It's been my intention to finish the Gospel narratives of Jesus' death and resurrection toward the end of Lent and into Easter. So that time having arrived, we'll take a short break from the book of Esther. Lord willing, we will return. But now I want to pick up with John chapter 19, the gospel text which was just read. So to refresh our memories, Jesus has undergone an initial interrogation by the high priest, a sort of preliminary hearing. He has undergone a full trial by the Sanhedrin. And now he's undergoing subsequent questioning by the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate previously had said that he found no guilt in Jesus, right? and he tried to please the crowd, and had tried to you know, engage in this prisoner swap, Jesus for Barabbas, according to this Passover prisoner release custom the Jews had. It was a move that didn't work. Right? It was Pilate's first attempt to free Jesus, but the crowd cried out for Barabbas' release instead. And so what we have in the text before us this morning from John 19, then, is a a wavering, uh, cowardly Pilate's second attempt to free Jesus. And at the same time, to please the mob. So we'll look at the text under two headings. They're there on the back inside page of the bulletin. The strategy and the sentencing. So first, the strategy. And here I mean Pilate's second strategy. After the Barabbas failure, his second strategy to release Jesus. He does not think Jesus is guilty of sedition, which was the charge that the Jewish leaders had leveled. He claims to be the king of the Jews, and thus a threat to the Roman rule of Judea, to Pilate's rule. Right, they, they really care, the Jewish leaders, about what they think is Jesus' blasphemy. But for political reasons, they feel that the charge of sedition, he claims to be king of the Jews, they feel that that will resonate better with Pilate. But Pilate's not buying it. But what is Pilate to do? He gave them a choice. They chose Barabbas. So this is his second move. Here he thinks, I will punish Jesus and release him. And that should end matters. So he takes Jesus, the text tells us this, and has him flogged. Now, there were different kinds of Roman flogging. This is not the brutal flogging that Jesus will later get. In that later flogging, which is recorded as administered to Jesus in the other Gospels, you were stripped, you were tied to a pole, and you were beaten by soldiers until either they got tired or they were called off. And you were beaten with a leather whip fitted with bone and metal. That flogging is so severe that the victims would sometimes die from the flogging alone. 
It would leave the victim with bones and entrails exposed. And the loss of blood itself would induce shock. That flogging, Jesus will receive. But it was reserved for after the sentencing of criminals, and Jesus has not yet been sentenced. He's been convicted by a Jewish court. His case is being heard by a Roman magistrate. So he gets a lesser, still brutal, beating here. One reserved for lower criminals, which is how Pilate is treating the case to this point. The fact that he was already flogged before he gets that second brutal flogging is probably a good reason why he could not carry his own cross very far later in the Gospels. So Jesus is beaten. And then the soldiers, the text tells us, twist a crown of thorns, some of which would be up to 12 inches long. These are long thorns, some of them, and they put it on his head. They are, of course, mocking his claim to be a king. It's a charge which would be a capital offense worthy of death by crucifixion under Roman law. Especially for one like Jesus, who, remember, has none of the legal protections of a Roman citizen. Of course, ironically, the soldiers do more than they know they're doing. He who comes to bear the curse, right, seen in the ground bearing thorns, is now crowned with thorns. They clothe him in a purple robe, an imperial color. And over and over, repeatedly, they say, Hail, King of the Jews. It's a mock version of Hail, Caesar. And they repeatedly hit him in the face. The other Gospels tell us that they take a reed, a sort of mock scepter, and beat him with that and spit on him. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of the Old Testament text, which was read this morning from Isaiah 50. I gave my back to those who strike my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace or spitting. In verse 4, Pilate comes out to address the Jews gathered in his courtyard. This is the third time he's come out. He keeps going back and forth from the courtyard where the crowd is, back into the palace where Jesus is, and then back again. So he comes out now again for the third time and says, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. The strategy is simple here. The strategy is they will see the beaten and the pitiful and the bruised, humiliated Jesus and they'll realize he's no threat. They'll say that's enough. Let him go. They'll call off the dogs. He's more fit for ridicule, Pilate thinks, than for any kind of serious legal action. Basically, he wants to let Jesus off with a beating. Jesus comes out 
He's got the crown of thorns and the robe. And Pilate famously, famously again, saying more than he knows, says, Eke homo, behold the man. Now he's ridiculing. Not merely Jesus, he's ridiculing the Jewish leadership as well. Behold the man. To Pilate, this means, look at this poor fellow, swollen and bleeding. He's so dangerous, this king of yours. He's learned his lesson. He's not going to do any harm. Judicially, he's irrelevant. Of course, again, Pilate says more than he knows. This is, of course, the man. The fully human one. Right? The word made flesh. The second Adam. The representative man. The head of the new humanity. This is man showing his glory in human brokenness and shame. This is the king beginning his conquest in humiliation. This is indeed the man shining forth in splendor. Behold then the man. And the mob is angry. They know that Pilate's mocking them. And so they shout, crucify, crucify. They're looking for a Roman execution at the hands of Pilate, right? The Jews stoned. They didn't crucify it. The Romans crucified. They want Pilate to convict him of a capital crime and execute him. And he taunts the crowd, Pilate does here, sarcastically, saying to them, you take him and crucify him. He knows that a couple decades earlier, 6 AD, Rome removed the authority of the Jews to execute the death penalty. It became the sole prerogative of the Roman governor in the province of Judea. Right, so... He's mocking them. You take him. You take him. As for me, he says, I find no basis for a charge against him. So, the leadership in the courtyard, the religious leaders, now thinking that their strategy of the sedition charge, remember, the sedition charge is the political charge. He's the king of the Jews. It looks like it's failing. Pilate's not buying in. Now they show their true colors. They've already convicted Jesus of blasphemy, not sedition, blasphemy at a Jewish trial just a couple of hours ago. Now they tell Pilate, we have a law. This is a reference to Leviticus 24. We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. They understand this claim. Jesus is not claiming to be a child of God like everybody is. He's claiming to be the unique son, one with the Father. So the crowd says, in other words, if the sedition charge won't work, then Pilate enforce our blasphemy law. Now when Pilate hears this, the text tells us he becomes afraid. This is probably due to his own superstitions. I mean, he's a Roman leader. These are cynical, hard-bitten, worldly men. But they still had superstitions. 
Pilate is worried that someone has something divine or mysterious. Maybe one of the gods is on this Jesus guy. So he goes back inside. He takes Jesus with him. And then he asks Jesus a question. Where do you come from? Now that is a much deeper question than Pilate realizes. Where do you come from? The question of Jesus' origin looms large in the whole Gospel of John. He comes, of course, from the Father. From the Father. But this, this would make no sense to Pilate. Right? Pilate's already shown contempt for the truth. What is truth? And the time is long past for Jesus to explain his origins in the being of God. He's been doing it for three years. So as Isaiah 53 says, like a sheep before its shearers, he was silent. He gives Pilate no answer. Where do you come from? Silence. And this angers Pilate. You could imagine it would get under his skin. He thinks either Jesus is baiting him. Or Jesus is showing him contempt, or both. Do you refuse to speak to me, he says? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And I can condemn, I can acquit. Now, this sort of brag by Pilate here is again ironic because he has essentially already found Jesus innocent, but he lacks the spine for an outright acquittal because he's afraid of the crowd. And so Jesus basically says back to Pilate, I'm not the one being swept up in events here. You are. You would have no power over me if it was not given to you from above. It's right at this point that Jesus asserts God is king over all. Over my arrest, over my trial. He does not just outwit people. He ordains these things. That, Pilate, is why you have jurisdiction here. It's been given from above. Which, by the way, is where I'm from. Remember that question you just asked me? Where are you from? I'm from the place the person where you're getting jurisdiction to do this. But Caiaphas, the high priest, the Jewish high priest, that's who Jesus has in view here, the one who handed me over to you, is guilty of the greater sin. This is not a statement about Judas. Judas did not hand Jesus over to Pilate. Caiaphas did. And his doing so was an abuse of his office as high priest. It's not that Pilate's not guilty, but Pilate did not initiate the prosecution. So if you look at verse 12, it's interesting and it's important. Then, with greater intensity, even at this late hour, Pilate tries to set Jesus free. I mean, this is remarkable. Pilate, he does not care about the sedition charge. And now we see that he does not really care about the religious charge. He thinks Jesus is innocent. He thinks at most he's a troublemaker. 
So, what turns the tide? I mean, think about this. What seals Jesus' doom in a trial where the judge believes he is not guilty and is trying repeatedly to free him? It's there at the end of verse 12. The Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king, as Jesus is doing, is opposed to Caesar. Right, the Caesar here is the emperor Tiberius. Tiberius, known to entertain, like many emperors, suspicions, paranoid suspicions about his underlings. But Tiberius was known to be ruthless if he thought they were up to mischief, if they did not have his back. So this is a threat from the Jewish leaders. What would Tiberius think, Pilate? If you released a man who claimed to be a rival king and the Jews had already complained to the emperor about Pilate's treatment of them before and they'd gotten some response from Rome. Rome had some, shown some sensitivity to Jewish complaints about Pilate and various governors of Judea. And this makes Pilate jittery. Right now they're saying we're more loyal to Rome than you are. And it's this threat. Essentially, I will tell your boss. And you won't keep your job. And quite possibly, you will not keep your life. This is the turning point. And it's here that Pilate, who's craven and cowardly, capitulates. His strategy to free Jesus fails for fear of the emperor. So that's the strategy. And that brings us to the Second point, which is the sentencing. The sentencing. Verse 13. Pilate hears about, he hears this threat that they're going to appeal to Tiberius. He brings Jesus out. This is his fourth trip out to the crowd. And now he's ready to render a judgment. He sits down on the judge's seat, a raised platform area from which Roman magistrates would pronounce verdicts. It's the day before the Sabbath, we're told. The day starts in the evening, so that means it's Friday. And the text says it's close to noon. Close to noon. Pilate now renders the indictment. This is not just a repetition of the earlier part of the text. This is a formal indictment from the magistrate's stone pavement platform. Behold, here is your king. Again, he's mocking. He knows their loyalty to Caesar is just political hypocrisy. So he says, okay, here's your king. What does it say about you if this is your king? And again, John sees the irony. He is the man, and the man is king. They shout, take him away. Take him away, crucify him. Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? Again, he's mocking, but he's also, he's also giving in. He's capitulating. And, and he's imposing the penalty of crucifixion right here. We have no king but Caesar, they say. Now, they have, you know, they've collaborated, right? They've sought the help, the patronage of Rome before. But this is a damning public confession. We have no king but Caesar, 
from the lips of Jews is to betray their national identity under God the King. It's even a denial of their expectation of the Messiah, who clearly would be a king. And again, it's hypocritical. On top of being corrupt, it's hypocritical. You know why? Because in a few decades, the Jews will in fact rebel against Rome with devastating consequences culminating in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so this is the culmination of what John began this gospel with long ago. He came to his own. His own received him not. And the verdict is sealed in verse 16. Though he doesn't explicitly say it, Pilate now officially finds Jesus guilty of sedition. And the text tells you, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. That means he handed him over to the will of the Jewish leaders, but into the hands of the Roman soldiers. Where Jesus, already battered, would receive that brutal, savage flogging we spoke of earlier, from which he goes out, bearing his cross. Think of Pilate's action here. You have a combination here of wickedness and cowardness, incompetence, such that a man who's the judge in a case against his own better instincts condemns an innocent man to death. He has sort of, against his own will, worked himself into the infamy of the Apostles' Creed forever. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, who did not really want to see him suffer all that much. So, in closing, in closing here, I want to remind us of two, two things. They're simple things that are connected together. I want to remind us of the sufferer, the sufferer, and his sufferings. This one, the sufferer, who this is, who this is, what the church calls Christology, talking, thinking, worshiping, confessing about Christ, this has been the chief concern of this gospel. Who is this? This is the eternal word, the Lagos, who was with God and who was God. This one in Pilate's hand is the creator and the sustainer of all, right? The source of life and light, the one who is one with the Father, and thus this is the immense, infinite, eternal God standing before Pilate. The one who could say, before Abraham was, I am. Right? The one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who raises the dead and gives them life. The one who has power to lay his life down, power to take it up again. And to our concern here, the one who says in John 5, 22, the father judges no one but he has given all judgment into the hands of the Son. This is the judge of the living and the dead. 
the one whose very voice raises the dead and executes judgment. So the deep irony of the scene, right? the steep descent, the depths of the humility, the infinite wonder of God's love for us can only be seen by those who have a high and an exalted and a full and a rich view of who this Christ is as the eternal God and as the second person of the blessed Trinity made flesh. It's right here that high theology is highly practical. High theology is highly practical because it alone makes wonder and worship and amazement and prostration possible. A lesser Christ, even a one iota lesser Christ. A Christ who is anything but the same substance with the unique transcendent God of Israel. A Christ who is anything other than the source of all being is just another faceless Roman victim. They're all over the place. When Rome put down the slave rebellion of Spartacus in 70 BC, they slaughtered 6,000 slaves, 40 or 50 yards apiece. The whole slaughtering scene of crucifixions taking up nearly 100 miles. This is just another one of those, unless this is the Christ that the church confesses in the Nicene Creed. If he's not that Christ... He's another faceless victim. Who this is, is everything. And this divine Christ, this divine Christ, he is the man. Fully human. It's in that humanity that he undergoes the suffering. He assumes your flesh to suffer in your flesh. And we see again then, we see this with our eyes, the eyes of our hearts in this text, the extent of his love for us, the extent of his obedience to the Father, the the descent I spoke of, the depths of the humility. Great as they were, they do not end with the incarnation. He suffered from the beginning. He was a man of griefs, acquainted with sorrows. But those sorrows are now coming to their depth, their awful climax in these very hours. And so this is the judge of all the earth being judged. The divine giver of just sentences being unjustly sentenced. As the creed put it, he suffered. He was sentenced and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. You can point to the date in space and time. Beloved, among the many uses of Lent, this time of the church year provokes us to do something that we might tend to forget, but must never forget. Namely, we need to think on and meditate on how much God loves us. Because that's what this text shows you. God loves you. And a careful reading of this text delivers that 
from all superficial, repetitive triteness. Never has a more costly, penetrating, profound thing been said than this. God, in Christ, loves us. Never. This is the demonstration of that love. I mentioned this on Wednesday night. I spoke to someone, a friend of mine, this week, who said they felt abandoned and unloved by God. Romans chapter 5 says, this cross, by this cross, God demonstrates. Not demonstrated, not past tense, demonstrates in this moment. That cross, this suffering, is the current tense, this moment, demonstration that God loves you. It's the height and the length and the breadth and the width of that love unfurling before us and it is not yet exhausted. Remember who he is because that enables you to see how far he came, how much he endured. Right, how flawless and beautiful and radiant and exacting this obedience is and how costly the love of God is. Protestants have a tendency to skirt these texts, in my opinion, and focus on the effects of the atonement. We have nothing like a stations of the cross, generally. But I can tell you this, these texts are there, they are plentiful, and they are long, and that means we must think On his anguish. We must linger on these passion narratives. We must not glide over them. We must not leave anything out. We must treasure in our hearts as tokens of his everlasting love, stronger than death, this scourging and this mockery and this spitting and the beating and the thorns and the judicial wickedness and the lies. They are for us. This is the stuff, this is the grist of our devotion. This strange, dark agony, it's what makes our hearts come alive. We're about to sing this. We're about to sing this, beloved. O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and with shame, weighed down now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine. Yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. That's someone who's lingered over this very text and the text which follows it. And having meditated, we pray with the hymn writer. We pray Oh, make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. Behold the man. Behold the king. Behold the eternal son of God in your battered, lacerated flesh and worship him. Amen. Amen.